Guardian Unlimited. Assalamualaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, your weekly glimpse of Muslim life in Britain, or if you read the Daily Mail, life in Muslim Britain. This week, as promised, we bring you news from Darfur, we have a terror update, a tour diary from Dakar, and for those of you partial to uniforms, we hear from the Muslim chaplain to the armed forces. In the studio, we have the multi-talented Farina Alam, editor of current affairs magazine Q News. Hi, Farina. Hello. Hello. And with her is her husband, Abdul Rahman Malik, contributing editor of Q News. So how did you get that job, Abdul? Well, I was actually involved in the magazine before Farina joined the magazine, okay. so I have greater history with it. But she has greater power. <laughs> I mean, she, she, I'm his she, boss. She had that the day I married her, so... Uh, yeah. I like this. This is so cute. We have an Islamophonic studio couple. Um, now, our first international port of call is Dakar, where we find urban artist Muhammad Ali. His work is influenced by street graffiti and Islamic calligraphy. Although he's normally out and about in his hometown of Birmingham, he's gone back to his Bangladeshi roots to work with orphans and spread a message of peace. We tracked him down earlier this week and I asked him how things were going. It's been great because it's something they've never really seen or heard before. You know, graffiti for them is about just political parties leaving their mark on the wall. So it has been quite an interesting response so far. Mohammed, do they see your work as art or do they see it as vandalism? I mean, you were previously in the US, which has a very different attitude towards this. Yes, the, the <laughs> it certainly has been challenging. Uh, I wouldn't say the visual arts are particularly strong here in Bangladesh. Even amongst uh, the kind of migrant communities, we're living in the Western world, like my own family, for example, the arts were certainly neglected, the visual arts especially. So it's been challenging. Mohammed, what kind of obstacles have you faced? Has anyone tried to arrest you yet? <laughs> no, I haven't been arrested yet. It's not, it's not, and even at the airport, I didn't have much hassle, uh, unlike my experience in, in the USA. Um, on your website, it says you previously thought art was useless when it came to offering direct aid to human suffering, but you've obviously changed your mind. Why the change of heart, and is graffiti really going to help anyone? For me, as an artist, I've seen directly how art has enhanced people's lives. It's managed to really heal wounds, and art for sure is an amazing um, kind of means of communication, a means of challenging the problems that, that we face. I mean, that sounds great, but can your artwork help people whose lives have been devastated by the floods? I mean, the flooding has killed hundreds of people, and more than a million people have been displaced from their homes. What can your art do to help those people? Interesting question. I mean, you could say the same in, in the sense of the project that I did in New York, where 10 members of the same family died in a huge apartment block fire. And the mother of that family, she came down in a wheelchair. She had tears rolling down her cheek. And she was helping painting the wall with me. We were literally writing this message on the wall, which said, Inna lillahi wa inna ilahi raji'un, meaning, verily from God we came and to him we shall return. A very simple and powerful principle. Similarly in Bangladesh, I'm working with an organization which is funded by UNICEF here. And what I'm doing is using art in a sense to enhance that slightly. Of course, I'm, I'm not saying I have all the solutions here. Yes, of course, we need to give them food and shelter. But what I'm trying to do is say, you know, give them a little something else to give them some direction or some kind of hope in life, you know what I'm saying? To be honest with you, I'd love to do a wall commemorating the people who, who've lost lives in natural disasters and at the same time, you know, try to give them some kind of a spiritual outlook on this, on this type of thing. Mohammed, it's been really nice having you on. Do you mind if we call you up in a couple of weeks to find out how you're doing? 
Of course, of course. And hopefully I won't be arrested and locked up somewhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we say to all our Islamophonic guests. All right, take care, Mohammed. Salaam alaikum. Okay. Abdul, what do you think of Mohammed's work? I like Mohammed's work. I, I've uh, interviewed him in the past, and, and we worked on a documentary for CNN late last year. I mean, he's exciting. He's really a street kind of guy. He's able to reach young people in a, in a really hands-on way. Young people love picking up a, a spray paint can going on the wall. It's a little bit risky. Mohammed has a bit of a checkered past, mm. uh, which he doesn't like to talk about, but he appears sort of attractive to especially young men in places like Birmingham or inner-city London. In that way, I think what he's doing is great. And some of the work that he's done has been really fantastic. There's a great there's a great wall in Birmingham with the community involved. And he's kind of this big, loud personality. And, and uh, there's something really compelling about him, something really likable. I think what Mohammed's done is really interesting because there are a number of Muslim artists, but they, they haven't been very successful in marketing themselves and connecting with a wider audience. And I think Mohammed has done a really good job of doing that. Mm. That's that's a skill on its own. He makes himself relevant outside the Muslim bubble while never losing his very out there, big beard, mm. I pray Islam. <laughs> you know, he's, he's kind of bold and big. And I like that. Now, until this week, I had not met Farina, although I had heard of her. In 2005, she was named Media Professional of the Year by Islamic Relief. She's begging me not to carry on, but I will. In 2006, she was named Media Professional of the Year at the Asian Women of Achievement Awards. Abdul, have you won any awards? No. Okay. Now, Farina was one of four... He's far more talented. Is he the power behind the glory? Absolutely. Now, you were one of four British Muslim delegates on a government-backed trip to conflict-ridden Darfur, the Sudanese region that has seen 200,000 people die and around 2.5 million people displaced. Almost all of the victims and fighters have been Muslim. At a press conference held earlier this week at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, one of the delegates, Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra, explained why they had gone to Sudan. We have just uh, returned recently from the Sudan as a Muslim delegation. Uh, we felt that it was extremely important for the Muslim community to have a leading role in assessing and examining what is going on in Darfur to see how we can join our efforts with the efforts of our own government and many other relief agencies to alleviate the humanitarian situation that the Darfurians are facing. The Muslim community here in Britain have done their bit and we hope that we will encourage them to do more. We have participated with uh, other religious communities in saying prayers for Darfur. And that is on the spiritual side and we hope that we will now uh, encourage more and more uh, financial assistance and my colleagues will tell us a bit more about what other initiatives we have in mind. We visited one of the camps and we met several people there. If I can share just one small example, which I think is going to live with me for a long time, is of a young boy that we met in the refugee camp, whose name was Zainul Abidin. He must have been 10 or 11 years old. These children were just returning from school with their books and everything, and we had a little chat with them. Uh, I asked him what he wanted to be when he was older, and he said to me, I would like to be a doctor. And I think he can be a doctor. But there is a long way to go from his refugee camp all the way to university. And we, the people of Britain, and particularly the Muslims of the world, can help that boy realise his dream. Now I'm with Jahangir Malik from Islamic Relief. Earlier in the press conference, the words shameful, embarrassing and upsetting were used to describe the response. Why did you use those words? 
I think those words that were used as a, as a Muslim community internationally when we saw the figures, they were referring to the 11% was, that was given to us from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and Malaysia compared to just over 52% from United States and UK. UK is given over 110 million to Sudan. That doesn't mean say individuals are not giving, but this is organisation, government to government. Why do you think there is a reluctance to help people in Darfur? Okay, uh, rule number one from fundraising organisation, those that have, not necessarily those that give. Okay, uh, but this is a Muslim, Muslim conflict. It's Darfur, it's complicated, it's political, it's tribal, there's talk of Arabs and Africans and all of this downplays the humanitarian crisis. So part of our struggle is to take this message out to the people saying that they definitely need to do more. Once they're named and shamed, I think they'll respond. Now tell me about this Muslim live aid at the end of the Rosa. Okay, at the end of Ramadan, uh, we're going to have a big party. It's positive, it's peace concert and I think the Eid times, we've had a month of fasting, a month of giving, a month of reflection. And here, let's come together, enjoy, celebrate, at the same time, be in solidarity with our people in Darfur. And therefore, we'll be asking to raise awareness and funds. And people, we're expecting uh, thousands of people to congregate and come together in London, Wembley, where they'll have a musical extravaganza for people of Darfur. you were in Darfur. Can you tell us about your experiences? Well, uh, it wasn't easy, but I was so glad that I was asked. We were hosted by Islamic Relief, which I'm very, very proud to say is a, is a fantastic British charity. It's a, such a complicated affair. I think we would do a great injustice if we try and oversimplify. This is not about Arabs versus black Africans. It's, that's such, such a myth. Um, it's not. It has so many layers. How did the experience affect you as a Muslim? You know, this is a Muslim-on-Muslim violence. Uh, I don't think it's motivated by Islam at all. But what uh, troubles me very much is that these are Muslims who are fighting over very, very scarce uh, resources like water. And it just troubles me that all the values that we talk about as Muslims, that killing one life is like killing all of humanity, and all that is kind of lost. Also, there's another dimension to this is is the muslim almost silence, which is even more, that's something I can take responsibility for because I, I do live in the West and I, and I believe that we can do so much more. I just, do, I, can't, I can't take responsibility for people fighting within Darfur, but I can say something about the fact that I think my community is not noisy enough about this conflict at all. Now, Jahangir Malik criticised the international response, but there was also some criticism about the British Muslim response. Mm. It's very easy to get excited about a natural disaster, you know, like the tsunami or the uh, Pakistan earthquake. earthquake. But, you know, Darfur has been going on for almost 20 years, perhaps even more. Uh, Just because we don't see dead bodies on TV and uh, buildings fallen doesn't mean the situation isn't bad. So I think that Islamic Relief and all of us who have now seen you know, the situation with our own eyes. I think it's our responsibility to raise awareness in our communities because I think the Muslim community is so generous if they are informed of the situation, they will really give with all their heart. Abdul, why has there been more noise about Iraq and Palestine and Afghanistan than Darfur, for example? 
Well, I think as Muslim communities, we had real blinders on in the way we define our spiritual geography of global Islam. There is an inordinate focus on the Arab world, partially because many of us are from the subcontinent, we're connected to the milieu that's that's there. But I I mean, when we think about Africa, we think about a continent with almost a billion people, out of which at least 60% are Muslim. I mean, Africa is a Muslim continent. And many of our young people, many of our elders, many of our communities have no sense of Islam outside of, of, of the places that are, that are familiar. There is a profound history of Muslim Africa, the culture, the music, the languages, the legacy of places like Timbuktu and their impact. I think we need to sort of raise the veil from our eyes and, and really see uh, the Muslim ummah, in inverted commas, really as what it is, a truly global, diverse community. And, and I, I, one other thing I would add is that, unfortunately, uh, often we as Muslims see things in, in this kind of global calculus of, of death, 600,000 dead in Iraq. It's absolutely catastrophic. But I think we need to balance our concern about Iraq, about Palestine, which are important, critical issues with the real humanitarian catastrophes in many parts of the world. If we are a globalized ummah, then we should definitely have a global outlook. And really, at the end of the day, this is about humanity. You are a human being before you you are Muslim in many ways. And uh, it doesn't even have to be a Muslim question, right? Of course, one of the ways that has been suggested to raise awareness about Darfur is to have a musical extravaganza, a Muslim live eight, if you will. What do you think of that? This concert's been planned for some time, and uh, the organizers have very generously decided that they are going to dedicate the whole thing to Darfur. And I think that's really good. Sami Youssef, who's going to be the big star at this concert he's very very popular and Wembley Arena holds you know 18,000 people oh it's not the stadium no I don't I think, think it's the arena it's the arena no no it, it is the arena and I think that's good I mean quality of sound is better anyway okay. um, we just I think there's a real capacity but it's about getting everyone moving um, so I'm, I'm for it It wouldn't be Islamophonic without a terror update, and we don't like to disappoint. So this week's bulletin is brought to you by Hassan Ahmed. Terror update. Hello. Hello, Islamalakum. Is that Hassan Ahmed? Hi, hi, hi. Hassan, tell us more. Basically, I set up a website to kind of counteract the bad publicity that most of them have been getting since, you know, 9/11, to actually take action against the media and do something for a change. This has come in the form of a petition. Is it a straightforward, we the undersigned object to acts of violence in the name of Islam? The main petition on there is to stand against all kinds of terrorism by any religion or any individual organization. It's to show that Islam is distant from these organizations and the aim is to really marginalize people who do associate with terrorism. Do you think the petition is the way to do this? This is basically a step in the right direction. It's really there to raise awareness, to try and get, get Muslims enthusiastic and to actually take action themselves. And there's a second petition on the website about Wahhabis. Well, basically what's been happening, um, in my personal view, is that over the past hundred years or so, there's been an increasing influence from extremists, mainly from, from this, this sect, which um, I personally don't associate with the Sunni sect or the Shia sect. Oh, perhaps not all Wahhabis are bad, but the ideology which has come from them, I believe, has led 
to the increasing stigma against Islam and Muslims. So you're saying that by objecting to Wahhabism, Muslims can distance themselves further from extreme ideology? I believe if we marginalize Wahhabis, then in 10 years' time, the media will, rather than referring to Islamic terrorists, would refer to them as Wahhabi terrorists. What's wrong with Wahhabis? As I said, I can't comment on every single individual. I am just commenting on the ideology, which comes from Ibn Taymiyyah and then from Muhammad Abdul Wahhab. If you look into the, the books, if you look into the history, you'll see either uh, promotes or accepts violence. And you'll see the way Wahhabis have treated, for example, the holy shrines in Medina, where they've demolished them. You've seen the acts against the Shias in Iraq, the acts against Sunnis themselves. Even in Saudi Arabia, many of the Sunnis complain of the harsh treatment of the Wahhabi regime there. So it's not something against a specific sect. It's a general ideology which tries to force people into their faith, tries to force people to adopt their principles rather than giving the people the choice. And how successful is this petition so far? Well, we've got a Facebook group, which, funnily enough, has got more people joining than the number of signatures we've got on the website. But there's about 800 people on the Facebook group. But I've received a lot of emails of people saying, thank you so much for producing the website. It's about time we took action. So there's a lot of good feedback. But what it's time to do now is really to take it forward, to get Muslims active, get people going in the correct direction in terms of media, get Muslims more involved and portraying the correct image of Islam. Hassan, thank you very much for your time and good luck with your petition. Thank you. Asalaamu Alaikum. Terror update. Farina, petitions renouncing terror. Way to go or just say no? You know, um, when Omar Bakri uh, self-exiled himself to Lebanon, what was it, a few years ago, I, I set up a, uh, a petition saying, you know what, don't ever come back. You've created a lot of problems for us. And uh, just stay, just stay there, mm. stay out. I believe in petitions. I think it it spreads the word, etc. I'm not sure, other than unless you have really huge numbers, I, I don't know if petitions make a really big impact. Abdul, wristband? Would you like to see a wristband, something for the boys? They can get involved then too, can't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, the Muslim men could probably wear, wear wristbands and, and that would be kind of funky for some. I agree with Farina. I think I think petitions and these kinds of things are important. People feel that it gives them uh, some kind of voice. I think for that reason alone, it's 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 the right thing to do. But hats off to the brother. I think he's uh, his his heart for the most part seems like it's in the in 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 the right place. Abdul, what's wrong with Wahhabis? Well, I I, I think this is where the problem comes. I I think these days we're so quick to label, and I mean I, I can speak in a way on behalf of our publication. I mean Q News has taken some pretty strong, bold stands against literal interpretations of the Quran. We've had direct rumbles with Wahhabi theology and that kind of narrow religious thinking. But I think particularly in the current political context that we're in, throwing around these terms, uh, I think it's dangerous. If you go down to Brixton Mosque, Mm. you'll find a lot of quote-unquote Wahhabis there. But you go a little bit deeper. You see, these are the guys who took on Abdullah al-Faisal. These are the guys who took on Omar Bakri, Abu Hamza, before it was popular. Absolutely. Uh, to do so. Now I like a man in uniform, so you can imagine how excited I was when the Muslim chaplain to the armed forces came into our studio for a chat. Here's Imam Asim Hafiz explaining some of the occupational hazards he has to face. I guess the biggest challenge is being the only one. Uh, There's only uh, one Muslim chaplain for all of the armed forces. And uh, um, my parish, shall I say, goes... uh, across the British Isles and, and beyond if required. And sort of getting around and, and meeting people and staying in touch with people has been 
quite uh, quite a challenge, but also sort of learning about the the culture of the armed forces because I'm working across the three services: Navy, Army, and Air Force. So learning the three very specific and very different cultures has been quite challenging. Now you were previously the Muslim chaplain for Wandsworth Prison. Now mm-hmm. you're in the army. Are you a glutton for punishment? Go <laughs> 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 yeah, from one very challenging situation to another. Well, um, I'm up for challenges. When I when I took on my job in in the prison service, I believed that I had a contribution to make. And in the same way, when I saw this post advertised, I, I felt that with my experience from the NHS and from the prison service, I, I thought that I had a good contribution to make here. Um, now, the British Armed Forces are fighting in Iraq. They're in Afghanistan. They're also in other countries where there's a major- majority Muslim population. How do you reconcile this with the Islamic perspective that killing is unjustifiable? Islam regards all life as sacred. No life should be uh, wasted un- unjustifiably. You're absolutely right. However, there are times when uh, one needs to um, uh, protect their country or their life or their wealth or their property and in those circumstances just as you know every nation has a defense force you know islam does understand that sometimes one needs to bear arms and protect themselves. But bearing in mind what we know now about the weapons of mass destruction or lack of how was britain defending itself? Well, that's not really for for me to say. I guess the politicians uh, need to need to answer answer that question. How did you learn of the plot to kidnap and behead a Muslim soldier? Um, I learned from the BBC, actually. <laughs> what was your reaction? Well, I was I was uh, quite uh, surprised and um, and uh, shocked um, that uh, the people who I'm I'm there to to primarily care for were under such stress and under such um, um, risk, shall I say. What were they saying to you in the immediate aftermath of the arrests? Well, um, generally speaking, um, the, the, the armed forces, or the army in this case, has a good um, welfare system in place. And if there were Muslims who were immediately concerned about their safety, they would go to their appropriate chain of command and uh, express their concerns to them, and the army would support uh, support them to ensure that they are safe. I had one or two contacts from Muslims serving within the armed forces who were sort of uh, disturbed and uncomfortable that uh, you know this was a job that they enjoyed, this was a job that they wanted to do, and that, they, that there were people out there who may be out to get them. What's the most frequently asked question from servicemen? Is it the sort of everyday thing, like, um, I'm not sure I can perform vuzu because I'm going to be mm-hmm. stuck in an armoured vehicle for yeah. 20 hours? Yeah. Or is it something more spiritual and something a little more abstract? No, the, there's a variety variety of questions, from spiritual issues to, you know, practical pastoral issues some just one of the things that you've mentioned actually two weeks ago someone asked me asked me that I'm going to be stuck in an armored vehicle for so long how do I perform my wudu you know you have people who have um, family issues that they want to discuss they might be going on exercise it might be Ramadan that's, that's something that they want to discuss so so the practical pastoral issues uh, are generally the uh, the most prominent concerns that come up so, according to our imam, it's okay for the British forces to be in Iraq and Afghanistan because they were defending themselves. Farina, did you buy that argument? 
Abdul no. shaking his head. No, no, not at all. And as a journalist, I feel really embarrassed that some of the people who pushed or, or sold this war were journalists because I think the government would not have got this message across if the papers and the channels uh, didn't buy into it. Abdul, would you join the British Army? No. Right now I can't because uh, for the next few months I'm I'm still not a British national. <laughs> okay. um, you married but, me for my passport, but, by the way. But if you, if you ask me would I join the Canadian Army, yeah. uh, my answer would be would be the same. And this seems so trite and Marxist, but I'll say it anyways. <laughs> uh, you know, the way military industrial complexes work, whether it's in Britain, Canada or elsewhere, is absolutely reprehensible. Guys, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank this you has been lovely. You. You're great together. <laughs> May thank it you last. for having us. Oh. I would like to thank Abdul and Farina for coming into our studio. Next week, as promised, we have gay Muslims, black Muslims, racist Muslims, former Muslims and generally more filling than you can shake your baps at. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was produced by Matt Haywood and it was presented by me, Riazat Button.